Bitcoin as a superior monetary good is more valuable than a better payment network. This leads us to another point as to why we believe Bitcoin should be considered primarily as a monetary good rather than a payment network. The fact that the market has shown a preference towards Bitcoin, which is slower as a payment system compared to other digital assets and blockchains, signals the market currently values a highly secure and decentralized store of value rather than another payment network. As we previously noted, Bitcoin's revolutionary invention was solving the problem of digital scarcity and creating a digital store of value, not making an incremental improvement to a payment system. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got a hell of a report today. Um, Fidelity has been killing it. We've read a couple of uh, Fidelity's works on the show before, um, and they have been in the space for a rather incredible amount of time. And I, and I mentioned in the guy's take, too, is that they've just been kind of quiet. Um, Fidelity has been kind of this sleeping giant, I feel like. Um, and uh, they have... One of the things that most impresses me about this is how well they understand the monetary argument, the monetary history, and the fundamental value proposition of Bitcoin, and why it seems to, quote-unquote, defy everyone in crypto who fails to understand that this is money and not a payment network, like the, uh, the introductory clip that I have at the beginning of this show. But we are going to get right into this piece. Um, it is really good. It's pretty long. I think it's about an hour and some change. And then because I don't know how to shut up, I have about an hour and 20 minutes worth of a rant at the end of this. So computer sit tight. Um, this has taken me a couple of days to put together, but I had fun with this episode and I love this report. And it's also not too technical jargony or whatever. You know, some of these reports are hard to go through. Um, and uh, this one's really good. This one's kind of light and easy to digest, I feel like. But before we do, um, let's go ahead and just thank our amazing sponsors. We've got the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Guys, it is very close and it is going to be absolutely insane. Miami, Florida, April 6th, uh, something like that. I don't know. Look it up. I have a link. Guyswan.com slash 2022. Um, and then the fold card, uh, the the debit card that gets you sats back on everything in life. You guys get a 20 freaking percent discount. So check out the link in the show notes. Then swanbitcoin.com. I just recently increased my automatic stacking. I hope you did too. Swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And lastly, the Bitbox, where you're going to keep all that good cheese safe. If you don't hold your keys, you don't own your cheese. That's why you need a Bitbox. Check out all of our sponsors. In the show notes, links, goodies, discounts, all the good stuff. With that, let's go ahead and jump right into today's read from Fidelity Digital Assets, and it is titled, Bitcoin First, 
why investors need to consider Bitcoin separately from other digital assets. Written by Chris Kuyper, CFA and Director of Research, and Jack Noroita, Research Analyst. A Fidelity Digital Assets Report from January 2022. Executive Summary Once investors have decided to invest in digital assets, the next question becomes, which one? Of course, Bitcoin is the most recognized first-ever digital asset, but there are hundreds and even thousands of other digital assets in the ecosystem. One of the first concerns investors have regarding Bitcoin is as the first digital asset, it may be vulnerable to innovative destruction from competitors, such as the story of MySpace and Facebook. Another common consideration surrounding Bitcoin is whether it offers the same potential reward or upside as some of the newer and smaller digital assets that have emerged. In this paper, we propose 1. Bitcoin is best understood as a monetary good, and one of the primary investment theses for Bitcoin is as the store of value asset in an increasingly digital world. 2. Bitcoin is fundamentally different from any other digital asset. No other digital asset is likely to improve upon Bitcoin as a monetary good because Bitcoin is the most, relative to other digital assets, secure, decentralized, sound digital money, and any, quote, improvement will necessarily face trade-offs. 3. There is not necessarily mutual exclusivity between the success of the Bitcoin network and all other digital asset networks. Rather, the rest of the digital asset ecosystem can fulfill different needs or solve other problems that Bitcoin simply does not. 4. Other non-Bitcoin projects should be evaluated from a different perspective than Bitcoin. 5. Bitcoin should be considered an entry point for traditional allocators looking to gain exposure to digital assets. And 6. Investors should hold two distinctly separate frameworks for considering investment in this digital asset ecosystem. The first framework examines the inclusion of Bitcoin as an emerging monetary good, and the second considers the addition of other digital assets that exhibit venture capital-like properties. What is Bitcoin? It is beyond the scope of this paper to provide a detailed explanation of Bitcoin. However, we do think it is important to emphasize some of the basics that are necessary to understand how Bitcoin has maintained a competitive advantage in the quest to represent the de facto non-sovereign monetary good of the digital asset ecosystem. Bitcoin the Network versus Bitcoin the Asset One of the most confusing concepts for those who are new to Bitcoin is understanding that the word Bitcoin can refer to two related but distinctly different things. There is Bitcoin with a capital B, the network or payment system. And then there is lowercase Bitcoin, the token or asset. To help avoid confusion, we will adopt the standard of capitalizing Bitcoin when referring to the network and using a lowercase character for Bitcoin, the token or asset. Bitcoin, the system, was first just an idea that set out to solve the problem of creating a truly peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Although we can transact in the physical world without an intermediary, 
using cash, until Bitcoin was invented, this was not possible in the digital realm. This idea was put into practice by writing code. Therefore, Bitcoin is just code, and Bitcoin the network is made up of millions of computers all running this identical Bitcoin software. This code acts like a protocol and provides the rules that govern the Bitcoin network. This network operates a payment system where users can send and receive a digital token, also called Bitcoin. The Bitcoin network is not compatible with other networks. Anyone can join or leave the Bitcoin network as long as they follow the core rules. Anyone that tries to change the rules without the consensus of enough of the other participants will be excluded from the network. Therefore, while Bitcoin's code is open source and can be copied and modified, these copies or derivations of Bitcoin are entirely separate networks and are not, quote, backward compatible with the original Bitcoin network. Furthermore, Bitcoin tokens are native to the Bitcoin network and cannot be removed or transported to another blockchain network. The importance of this will be revealed later in this paper as we discuss the power of network effects and why we see one network dominating the market. Why we believe Bitcoin is best understood as a monetary good. What is money? We believe money is a tool that allows exchange rather than barter. Throughout most of history, we have seen humans iterate in search of the best representation of money. A monetary good is a good that is valued for its tradability for other goods, not its consumption or use. Throughout history, various goods have been used as money, such as shells, beads, stones, fur, and wampum, which leads to the question, why do some things become treated as a monetary good while others do not? Economists and historians suggest the answer lies in a number of characteristics that make, quote, good money. The more characteristics a good possesses, the better it can serve as being money, or the more likely it will emerge or be accepted as money. A diagram of the properties of good money comparing gold, bitcoin, and fiat currency. Durable. While all are physically durable, Fiat currency over history has not maintained purchasing power durability. Divisible. Physical gold is only divisible to small pieces. Bitcoin is divisible to eight decimals. Fungible. Gold and Bitcoin are fungible, but fiat currency is not fungible with other fiat, i.e. the U.S. dollar is not fungible with the Canadian dollar. Portable. Gold has a high value-to-weight ratio, but compared to the others is still heavy and cumbersome to transport. Verifiable. Both gold and fiat currency have been counterfeited. Gold can be verified, but only through cumbersome assay. Scarce. Gold is scarce. Bitcoin is scarce and finite. The only constraint on fiat currency is willingness of government or central banks to print it. And track record. Gold has the longest track record as money and maintaining purchasing power. Bitcoin's history is the shortest. Fiat currency has a poor track record. Bitcoin clearly possesses a lot of good qualities of money, 
combining the scarcity and durability of gold with the ease of use, storage, and transportability of fiat, even improving on it. It is also worth noting that just like other monetary goods, Bitcoin is not a company. It doesn't pay a dividend or have cash flows. Therefore, its value must be derived from its ability to better fulfill the characteristics of a monetary good compared to traditional alternatives. Bitcoin's value is driven by its enforceable scarcity. One of the greatest characteristics of Bitcoin's properties is its scarcity. Not only is Bitcoin scarce, Bitcoin's current inflation rate of 1.8% is roughly equal to gold's inflation rate at the moment. But unlike gold, it is also provably finite. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. No other digital asset possesses an immutable monetary policy on the level of Bitcoin. In other words, Bitcoin's monetary policy may be viewed as the most credible. But how is Bitcoin's scarcity, its 21 million supply cap, enforced? Two key characteristics underpin this credibility and are necessary to understand Bitcoin's enforced supply cap, as well as why it is distinct from every other digital asset. The first is Bitcoin's decentralization. No one person, corporation, or government owns or controls the Bitcoin network, or the rules that govern the network. As a completely decentralized network that is running open source code, the participants in the network must adhere to the code's rules that govern the network. The 21 million supply cap was written in the original Bitcoin source code, which continues to run the Bitcoin network today. But if the network is operated by mere code, can't this code be changed? Yes, but only through consensus of the network participants, the node operators. A change in Bitcoin supply schedule is something that could happen in theory, but almost never will in actual practice. First, gaining consensus is enormously hard to do because Bitcoin's network and market participants are so widely dispersed. There is not a large consortium to have sway or voting power. More importantly, the network was designed with incentives to not change the supply cap. It would not be in the economic interest of the current network participants to raise or adjust the supply cap, as doing so would only serve to inflate the supply of Bitcoin and dilute the value of their holdings, or in the case of miners, their mining rewards. Here we see the powerful effects of game theory at work, as it is in the best interest of all participants to coordinate, cooperate, and not change the supply cap. Second, the Bitcoin network is censorship-resistant. Because no person, corporation, or government owns or controls the Bitcoin network, it is very resistant to censorship. In addition, the Bitcoin network has no geographical boundaries, making it difficult for a nation-state to assume control or regulation of the network and the core Bitcoin code itself. To review the step-by-step -step logic as to why we believe Bitcoin is a monetary good that has value. 1. A monetary good is something that has value attributed to it above and beyond its utility or consumption value. 
Although Bitcoin's payment network certainly has a utility value, people are also ascribing a monetary premium value to the Bitcoin tokens. 2. One of the primary reasons investors attribute value to Bitcoin is its scarcity. Its fixed supply is the reason it has the ability to be a store of value. 3. Bitcoin's scarcity is underpinned by its decentralization and censorship-resistant characteristics. 4. These characteristics are hard-coded into Bitcoin and almost certainly will never be changed because the same people that ascribe value to Bitcoin and own it have no incentive to do so. In fact, network participants are incentivized to defend these very characteristics of a scarce asset and an immutable ledger. Why we believe Bitcoin has the potential to be the primary monetary good. Investors may agree that Bitcoin possesses many of the qualities that make for good money. But who is to say that only one monetary good can or will exist? We won't be so bold as to predict there will only ever be one money. But we do believe that one monetary good will come to dominate the digital asset ecosystem due to the very powerful effects of networks. Monetary network effects are extremely powerful. Many investors are familiar with the power of network effects, where the value of a given network increases exponentially as the number of its users grows. Monetary networks are no different. However, they are even more powerful than other networks because the incentive to choose the right money is much stronger than any other choice of a network, such as a social network, telephone network, etc. If investors are looking for a digital asset as a monetary good, one with the ability to act as a store of value, then they will naturally choose the one with the largest, most secure, most decentralized, and most liquid network. Bitcoin, as the first truly scarce digital asset ever invented, received a first-mover advantage and has maintained this advantage over time. Note that while Bitcoin's dominance or its market capitalization as a percentage of the entire digital asset ecosystem has declined from 100% to approximately 50%, this is not due to it shrinking in size, but rather the rest of the ecosystem growing. There is also a reflexive property to monetary networks. People observe others joining a monetary network, which incentivizes them to join as well, as they also want to be on the network where their peers or business partners reside. This can be observed on a smaller scale with payment networks today, as platforms like PayPal and Venmo have grown at an accelerating rate. In the case of Bitcoin, the reflexive property is even more pronounced, because it doesn't just include passive holders of the asset, but it also includes miners that actively increase the security of the network. As more people believe Bitcoin has superior monetary properties and opt to store their wealth in it, demand increases. This in turn leads to higher prices, particularly as supply is inelastic or unresponsive to price. Miners are then incentivized to increase their capital expenditure and computing power as higher prices leads to higher profit margins. More computing power devoted to Bitcoin mining leads to higher security of the network, 
which in turn makes the asset more attractive, leading once again to more users and investors. This network competition is likely to result in a winner-take-all scenario as the network grows and becomes more valuable because the choice of any other monetary network that does not become the dominant one will result in a loss of investment. Every investor looking to store value in a monetary good is making a choice as to which monetary network they are opting into, whether they are acknowledging it or not. Any subsequent monetary good would be, quote, reinventing the wheel. The phrase, don't reinvent the wheel, is so common it has become a cliché. Nevertheless, we think this applies to Bitcoin as a digital monetary good. The invention of the wheel represented an entirely new technology that once invented could never be reinvented. Similarly, never before in human history had the problem of digital scarcity and a true peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash been solved until Bitcoin was invented. Solving this problem was not merely an incremental improvement, but a leap forward or an unlocking of the puzzle of how digital scarcity could exist. Because Bitcoin is currently the most decentralized and secure monetary network relative to all other digital assets, a newer blockchain network and digital asset that tries to improve upon Bitcoin as a monetary good will necessarily have to differentiate itself by sacrificing one or both of these properties, an idea we explore in more detail below, the blockchain trilemma. A competitor that tries to merely copy Bitcoin's entire code will also fail, as there will be no reason to switch from the largest monetary network to one that is completely identical but a fraction of the size. The Lindy Effect and Bitcoin's Anti-Fragile Qualities The Lindy Effect, also known as Lindy's Law, is a theory that the longer some non-perishable thing survives, the more likely it is to survive in the future. For example, a Broadway play that has run for 10 years is likely to run another 10 years compared to one that has run for only one year. We believe the same may apply to Bitcoin. Every minute, hour, day, and year that Bitcoin survives increases its chances of continuing into the future as it garners more trust and survives more shocks. It is also worth noting this goes hand-in-hand hand with the property of anti-fragility, where something becomes more robust or stronger with each attack or time the system is under some form of stress. In fact, if an investor were presented with the idea of Bitcoin and then asked to come up with a list of stressors, attacks, shocks, or failures that would likely be the demise of this nascent technology, they would probably underestimate all the negative events that Bitcoin has already endured that have not proven to be the death knell of the network. A non-exhaustive list of some of the negative events that Bitcoin has endured. Created by an anonymous person or persons whose true motive or any affiliation is unknown. Some Bitcoin tokens have been confiscated by the FBI. Multiple exchange hacks has been declared dead hundreds of times by major news outlets and famous investors, CEOs, etc. Used on the dark web for illicit purchases. 
endured a, quote, civil war regarding the core code. See the section on block size war. Price has suffered multiple more than 50% drawdowns, many larger than 80%. Banned in multiple countries. Has been labeled a fraud, a Ponzi scheme, and speculative gamble. Remains the primary form of payment for ransomware attacks. Has endured multiple forks in its code. Copied by competitors thousands of times. Why another digital asset is unlikely to supersede Bitcoin as a monetary good. Perhaps investors agree that Bitcoin is currently the best monetary good in the digital asset marketplace, and that it is likely that one digital monetary good will dominate the market due to network effects. However, couldn't a superior or improved version of Bitcoin be created and become the dominant monetary good? Isn't Bitcoin's code open source so that anyone can copy it and improve upon it? While it certainly is possible in a free market of emerging digital assets, we believe it is highly unlikely for Bitcoin to be replaced by a, quote, improved digital asset for several reasons. One of the biggest reasons is that any improvement in one characteristic of Bitcoin, such as improving its speed or scalability, leads to a reduction in another characteristic, such as Bitcoin's level of decentralization or security. This trade-off is known as the blockchain trilemma. The blockchain trilemma. All right, let's take a quick break right here before we jump into this section and talk about our sponsor for today. I am happy to report that I am fully prepared for the conferences this year, finally. Um, Bitcoin 2022 is the conference of Bitcoin conferences, and it is coming at the beginning of April, and it is very, very close now. If you guys have not gotten your tickets, don't forget you can get a 10% discount with code GUYSWAN at checkout. And that's any of the tickets you want, whether you're, you know, you just want to go to the music festival, or if you want to go into the whale party with all the investors and the huge business people, the CEOs and the celebrities, or you want a general admissions ticket so you can see all the artwork, you can see all the lightning games, you can, you know, go to all the uh, talks and everything, you can come see me talk because you know you want to, Guy Swan is going to be there and I'm going to be on stage, I'm so excited, um, but don't forget that 10% discount with code Guy Swan. It is going to be an absolute blast, I am so excited, um, last year was just epic and Damn, I just feel like 2022, there's so much going on. There's so much going on. I need to do another Domino's episode. In fact, somebody mentioned it recently. But Bitcoin 2022 is going to be epic. There's so much to unwrap. And I feel like there's a lot of things waiting in the wings to be announced and shared. And they want to be able to do it on a large stage. So I am, man, man, there's going to be some excitement. Uh, but don't forget... Uh, discount codes, all that good stuff in the show notes. Get your tickets. I'll see you there. Don't forget to DM, by the way. Twitter DMs open. And I will see you guys at Bitcoin 2022. Let's jump back in. The Blockchain Trilemma As far back as the early 1980s, computer scientists identified a kind of trilemma embedded in decentralized databases. 
More recently, a variation to this trilemma, known as the blockchain trilemma, was outlined by Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin, where he states that a decentralized database, of which Bitcoin is one type, can only deliver on two of three guarantees at one time. Decentralization, security, or scalability. Security refers to how likely it is the network can be attacked or compromised. In the case of a decentralized network like Bitcoin, the main concern is a 51% attack, whereby a single person or entity controls more than half of the Bitcoin network's computing power, known as hash rate. If this is achieved, the attacker could control the network, or more specifically, make changes to the open ledger, such as performing double spending or reversing transactions. Trust in the network would be lost and could collapse the entire network. As the Bitcoin network becomes larger, with more nodes and miners distributed among more people, entities, and geographic areas, it becomes harder and more expensive to attack. Bitcoin is by far the most secure digital asset when measured by the hash rate or computing power that is securing the network, compared to other digital assets that use the same hashing algorithm as can be seen in the following graph. Unfortunately, because of the differences in hashing algorithms, Bitcoin's hash rate cannot be directly compared to the hash rate of other digital assets, most notably Ether, the second largest digital asset by market capitalization. However, we can compare total annual energy usage as a proxy for security, with more energy usage as a measure of more mining resources dedicated to securing the network. On this measure, Bitcoin is estimated to consume approximately 137 terawatt hours annualized, compared to approximately 25 terawatt hours for Ethereum. Decentralization refers to how much control any one person, entity, or group may have on a system or network. In a decentralized network, consensus is achieved through a kind of voting mechanism. In this system, no single entity can control or restrict the data. In an open decentralized network, anyone is also free to join, and no entity can exclude them as long as they follow the rules or protocol of the network. This allows the network to operate without intermediaries. The cost of higher decentralization is lower throughput of the network, or the speed at which information can pass due to the need for a larger consensus. The opposite of a decentralized network would be a completely centralized network where one intermediary controls all aspects of the network. The advantage to this is incredible speed and throughput, as there does not need to be a consensus. But the disadvantage is the need to then trust this single intermediary. Bitcoin is the most decentralized digital asset based on many factors. For example, as a recent CoinMetric report noted, Bitcoin continues to show increasing decentralization as the number of holders has become distributed. Active addresses continue to increase, and Bitcoin mining pools continue to become more fragmented and competitive. Furthermore, Bitcoin's computing power, known as hash rate, has recently undergone a great distribution. Only a few years ago, 
It was estimated approximately 75% of the Bitcoin network's hash rate was coming from operators located in China, and only 4% from the United States. Most recently, due to China's ban on these activities, virtually none is located in China, and now the U.S. holds the top spot at approximately 35%. Scalability refers to how well the network can handle growth, such as growth in the number of users and how many transactions the network can handle in a limited amount of time. Scalability has notably been the Achilles heel of the Bitcoin network, as it maximizes decentralization and security, but as a result is the network with one of the slowest transaction throughputs. The Bitcoin network adds a new block and validates transactions on average only every 10 minutes. And because Bitcoin's block size is limited, only so many transactions can fit into each block. To put this into perspective, the Bitcoin network is able to process approximately 3 to 7 transactions per second, versus a highly centralized payment network like Visa, which processes approximately 1,700 transactions per second with the ability to scale and process multiple times if needed. None of the characteristics above are in and of themselves better than another. It depends on the use case. Some users may favor scalability over decentralization, or vice versa. Our only point here is to understand there is an inherent trade-off. To summarize, we believe Bitcoin is currently the most secure and decentralized monetary network. Therefore, this excludes other networks that are competing on different use cases besides money. We also believe the Bitcoin network will continue to be the most secure and decentralized into the future, due to the blockchain trilemma as outlined above and also as exemplified in a real-world example below the block size war. We also believe because monetary networks have massive network effects, Bitcoin's security and decentralization will only grow stronger over time. Could another network come along in the future that somehow improves upon Bitcoin as a monetary network? We concede there is a non-zero chance, but believe it is incredibly small due to our arguments outlined here. A real-world example of trying to, quote, improve Bitcoin, the block size war. As we previously noted, Bitcoin's transaction throughput is limited by both the time between when each block is added and transactions are validated, approximately every 10 minutes, as well as the block size, a little over one megabyte, which limits the number of transactions that can fit into each block. Some users and developers, therefore, proposed a seemingly simple and straightforward way to address this problem. Increase the block size to greater than one megabyte. While this may seem to represent a non-controversial and simple change, it actually spawned a fierce war within the development community that spanned years. The debate can be summarized by putting the opposing views into two camps, the small blockers versus the big blockers. While the block size was the specific piece of code at the center of the debate, the issue at stake 
was actually a larger one regarding the principles of what Bitcoin is and how it should or shouldn't evolve. Those that wanted the original block size, or smaller blocks, generally favored robust protocol rules that should be very hard to change with a long-term focus on Bitcoin's stability. This ethos continues today, with many proposed code changes, even upgrades that are considered improvements, failing to get implemented. In the small blocker's view, any change in the code could potentially open up the Bitcoin network to a new or unforeseen attack vector. The small blockers also believed the ability for individuals or average users to run a personal node was important to preserving Bitcoin's security and decentralization. Bigger blocks would mean more history to archive in the blockchain, and therefore makes running a node, Bitcoin's ledger, more difficult and expensive. On the other hand, the big blockers wanted protocol rules that could be changed more easily and faster in order to focus on dismantling short-term obstacles or addressing arising opportunities with more of a, quote, startup mentality. Larger blocks would allow for higher scalability and faster transactions. However, increasing the block size does not come without trade-offs. First, larger blocks lead to larger blockchains. Currently, the entire blockchain, all transactions ever recorded on Bitcoin's open source ledger, is approximately 400 gigabytes in size. This makes it feasible for nearly anyone to download the entire blockchain and run a full node from their home computer, or even a specially built simple computer that costs approximately $100. If the blockchain is larger, it would become more expensive and harder for individuals to run a node, and could lead to less decentralization as only corporations or those with more expensive equipment could build and run nodes. Larger blocks also mean that there could be non-full blocks, which would lead to low transaction fees. While this certainly helps scalability, it could conversely lower the incentives for miners due to lower transaction fees, particularly as the block subsidy, the other portion of the rewards that miners receive, continues to get cut in half every four years. If miners discontinue operation, this decreases the security of Bitcoin's network. In summary, the block size war demonstrates the blockchain trilemma inherent to Bitcoin's network. Larger blocks could increase scale or throughput, but at the potential loss of decentralization and security. The other important point about this history is that the changes proposed would, and did, result in a hard fork, meaning the change to the code would not be backwards compatible, and all nodes would have to upgrade in order to avoid a split in the network. The various hard forks that have come about because of or in relation to the block size war have either failed completely, such as Bitcoin XT and Bitcoin Classic, or have struggled to gain any kind of market dominance, such as Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV, or quote, Satoshi's vision. Bitcoin continues to dominate the market capitalization of all competing currency tokens, as can be seen on the graph. Bitcoin Cash Case Study 
one of the most notable hard forks that came out of the block size war was Bitcoin Cash. Advocates of this hard fork believe Bitcoin should first and foremost be a literal, quote, peer-to-peer electronic cash system, or a system that can handle a large amount of transactions. In other words, Bitcoin Cash advocates believe Bitcoin should first focus on becoming a reliable medium of exchange, rather than a store of value. We emphasize that there is nothing inherently, quote, wrong with this approach, but it once again demonstrates the trade-offs made for scalability. There is also nothing stopping developers and the marketplace from choosing Bitcoin Cash for faster or cheaper payments at the cost of security and decentralization. However, we can see that in terms of overall value with Bitcoin's market cap, a hundred times that of Bitcoin Cash, investors have continued to choose Bitcoin as the preferred monetary network and therefore appear to value a secure and sound store of value over faster or cheaper payments. Bitcoin as a superior monetary good is more valuable than a better payment network. This leads us to another point as to why we believe Bitcoin should be considered primarily as a monetary good rather than a payment network. The fact that the market has shown a preference towards Bitcoin, which is slower as a payment system compared to other digital assets and blockchains, signals the market currently values a highly secure and decentralized store of value rather than another payment network. As we previously noted, Bitcoin's revolutionary invention was solving the problem of digital scarcity and creating a digital store of value, not making an incremental improvement to a payment system. Ethereum Case Study It is beyond the scope of this paper to examine the Ethereum network and the Ether token in its entirety. However, it is instructive to observe some of the similarities and differences between Bitcoin and Ether, which is the second largest digital asset by market capitalization. From its inception and as an idea published as a white paper, Bitcoin set out to solve the problem of a quote, purely peer-to-peer version of electronic cash. Its network was designed to be decentralized and secure so that value could be sent without having to trust an intermediary. This was combined with a pre-programmed monetary schedule and credibly enforced supply cap of 21 million, giving Bitcoin the ability to become a monetary good and store of value. Ethereum also started as a white paper, originally published in 2013 by Vitalik Buterin. In summary, Ethereum set out to take the blockchain technology pioneered by Bitcoin and extend it to include more capabilities, most notably the ability to do more complex transactions. From the Ethereum white paper, quote, What Ethereum intends to provide is a blockchain with a built-in, fully-fledged, Turing-complete programming language that can be used to create contracts that can be used to encode arbitrary state transition functions. This allows the Ethereum blockchain network to host and run, quote, smart contracts that can be used to program all kinds of applications. 
It is for this reason some like to refer to the Ethereum network as a, quote, distributed world computer. The network also allows different tokens to be issued on the Ethereum blockchain. This network acts as a kind of platform that others can use to build multiple applications on top of, including decentralized finance applications, games, social media tools, etc. While Ethereum may be viewed by some as a superior or more advanced network compared to Bitcoin, the additional capabilities and flexibility come at a cost, most notably a more complex network that increases the chance for software bugs as well as less decentralization and potential decline in security. Below is a summary of some of the differences and trade-offs between the Bitcoin and Ethereum networks. The primary purpose, Bitcoin, decentralized, secure, monetary network. Ethereum, distributed world computer. Speed of improvement implementation, Bitcoin, very slow and deliberate. Ethereum, fast and responsive to user demand. Programmable or smart contracts, Bitcoin, no. Ethereum, yes. Ability to host multiple tokens. Bitcoin, no, only Bitcoin. Ethereum, yes. Monetary policy. Bitcoin, fixed, pre-programmed, and has never changed. Ethereum, has changed and is expected to change again. Auditability, or how many tokens exist. Bitcoin, yes, very easy to audit at any time. Ethereum, can be audited, but may be more difficult. Level of centralization. Bitcoin, very decentralized. Ethereum, more centralized. Cost of a node. Bitcoin, cheap, around $100. Ethereum, expensive. Consensus mechanism. Bitcoin is proof of work. Ethereum is currently proof of work with plans underway to move to proof-of-stake. How Bitcoin may position itself against the rest of the digital asset ecosystem. As we previously noted, the open-source nature of Bitcoin creates the ability for individuals to easily copy, alter, and build off the original Bitcoin-based code for their own tokens and projects. This has allowed for the creation of a massive amount literally thousands, of alternative coins or altcoins, leading to confusion for newcomers to the space, at times causing some to misstate that Bitcoin is not scarce because there are hundreds of coins. However, from our discussion thus far, we have proposed 1. The Bitcoin network is not compatible with other blockchain networks, and Bitcoin tokens are not fungible with other tokens. Therefore, Bitcoin tokens are scarce, while digital tokens, broadly speaking, are not scarce. 2. The primary value driver of Bitcoin tokens is the scarcity incredibly enforced supply cap. 3. Bitcoin is best understood as a monetary good. And 4. Bitcoin is likely to be the primary monetary good, and another digital asset is not likely to supersede Bitcoin in this role.
In addition, we have seen that Bitcoin is currently the most secure and decentralized network. But at the base, or native network layer, it is not the most scalable. Bitcoin's network also does not allow for additional functionality or programmability, as we have seen in our comparison to Ethereum. Because of these inherent trade-offs, we have seen a boom in the digital asset ecosystem, with hundreds, if not thousands, of different projects, all looking to achieve some different level of usability to fulfill a market need. Investors, of course, naturally wonder what the eventual end state of this innovation looks like. Although no one knows exactly what this may become, we think it is instructive to examine two dominant narratives that have grown popular for envisioning the future digital asset ecosystem. Particularly, we are interested in how Bitcoin may assert itself in each of these scenarios. 1. A Multi-Chain World the current construction of various tokens has led to a relatively siloed digital asset universe, with developers opting to work within a particular ecosystem. For instance, Bitcoin's construction is fundamentally different than that of Ethereum. The result is that Ethereum and its entire ecosystem of tokens and NFTs are incompatible with native Bitcoin, and unable to interact in an easy and trustless manner. To date, Trusted third parties have been a critical requirement for swapping assets that live in the different silos. Bridges are being constructed to connect various blockchain ecosystems to one another, an important theme we have observed and expect will continue in the coming months and years ahead. Interoperability will be a key development for the success of the digital assets ecosystem if we are to assume that multiple chains will win due to various base layer trade-offs, use cases, and value propositions. In a world of multiple winning chains, it still appears that Bitcoin is likely the best equipped to fulfill the role of the ecosystem's non-sovereign monetary good, with relatively less competition than other digital assets attempting to fulfill alternative use cases. The explicit emphasis on security and maximum decentralization reinforces its rule set and enforces all users' rights equally. Furthermore, as a result of its scarcity and enforced supply limit, Bitcoin is the closest a digital protocol could be to enforcing absolute scarcity. In other words, any project or other blockchain network that requires its users to believe they are transacting with a token that has real monetary value likely needs to be directly or indirectly connected to Bitcoin as the ultimate monetary good. For example, people use tokens at an arcade for ease of use and utility and attribute value to them because they know they represent a certain dollar amount or can be traded for other goods and prizes. However, outside of the native arcade environment, the tokens have little to no value. This world leaves non-Bitcoin tokens battling to prove other viable use cases for their technology. They're aiming to find the right trade-off for some particular level of base layer scaling and encountering vast competition for development and functionality enhancements. This is not an indictment of those building on or investing in non-Bitcoin chains, but merely an observation 
that Bitcoin's clear advantage as a store of value asset reduces its risk even in a world that contains an ecosystem of many vibrant digital assets. Assuming this outcome, Bitcoin is still a clear beneficiary of flows into the overall digital asset space, given that it is viewed as the ultimate monetary digital asset, making it arguably the greatest risk-adjusted and easiest investment to understand and allocate towards across all of the digital asset landscape. 2. A winner-take-all or most world these last few sections are really good. Um, let's pause real quick and thank our sponsor. And that's going to be the fold card today. And we're going to talk about some best practices right now. So right now, the fold card, again, this is a debit card, not a credit card. So you never pay interest on this. It's not debt. You are getting sats back on everyday purchases that just go straight from money that you have in your debit card. And they have a 1.5% base rate, or you can spin the wheel. And I am, I don't know if that makes me a gambler or if I'm just stupid, but I love to spin the wheel because, I don't know, it's fun. It's gamified. Now, what I have done is I've changed my strategy recently because this is a new development where you can pick, you can choose whether you have 1.5% or you spin the wheel. What I do is I save all of my extra spins, which I get in the little AR thing, and I stack every day and I always have $1,000 more. You get extra spins, lots of good tips there. Um, but also, I anything like $70 or so below, I just automatically pick 1.5%. Because if I, I'm not going to use any respins on those, right? I want to save those for big purchases. But when my bills come in, when my utilities come in, when I'm making a big purchase at the grocery store or buying something big on Amazon... That is when I save my spins. And that way I can almost always make sure I get a little bit more than 1.5% and I've got a really good baseline. You gotta maximize your sat stacking and that's a great way to do it with the fold card. 20% off the card by using code BITCOINAUDIBLE. The links and the discount code will be in the show notes. So don't forget to check it out. Get your fold card and start stacking on every single thing that you buy in life. This is the way. Now let's jump back in. Two, a winner-take-all or most world. Blockchains are undoubtedly an important technological creation. The ability to take an otherwise centralized database of information and remove a trusted third party was a radical non-incremental innovation. However, a centralized blockchain is relatively indistinguishable from a database and reduces the important qualities offered by a decentralized blockchain, including immutability, seizure resistance, censorship resistance, and trustless design. Thus, we can envision a spectrum of decentralization that has taken place with tokens. This varies from as decentralized as possible, like Bitcoin, to tokens whose protocols are decentralized in name only and give exorbitant power to developers or certain community members. Therefore, there is a possible scenario where users and investors will prefer different tokens based on the trade-off of less decentralization for more features. This is similar to the multi-chain world described above. However, 
there is another scenario that could arise due to the ability for applications and scaling solutions to be built on top of the base layer, or layer 1 blockchains. If applications can be built on top of an existing blockchain network, rather than be forced to start a new network, users would arguably want to build on top of the strongest, most secure networks. Therefore, we could see a world in which one or very few of these chains accrues the majority of the value in the digital asset ecosystem and is chosen as the premier blockchain network. Given that Bitcoin is arguably the most decentralized and immutable blockchain in existence, it appears as a prime candidate to be one of or perhaps even the sole winner if this situation were to play out. The Bitcoin Lightning Network One interesting Layer 2 application we are already witnessing being built on top of the core Bitcoin network is the Lightning Network. This is a decentralized network that is built using smart contract functionality and allows off-chain transactions between persons, but with the ability to make a final settlement transaction on the base layer Bitcoin network. A simple analogy of this would be participants opening a private tab between each other, transacting back and forth with greater speed and very low transaction fees. This increases Bitcoin scalability, but with the option to settle at any time on the base layer, it still benefits from Bitcoin's security. The internet and its base layer, TCPIP, provides the perfect example of this. The internet protocol suite, known as TCPIP, is an open source base layer for communication to flow through, and subsequently, applications and content to be built on top of. The TCPIP protocol is not owned by anyone, and as it is open source, this internet of information does not allow ownership of the base layer. Rather, ownership is only possible for the applications and technology constructed on top of it. In contrast, ownership of the base layer is possible in the digital asset world. Like TCPIP, applications can also be constructed using the base layer, and then these technological upgrades enhance the value captured by the base layer. The innovations from Amazon, Facebook, Google, Netflix, and others made the Internet's base layer far more valuable and important. Similarly, the innovation taking place in and around particular digital asset protocols makes their respective base layer ownership breadth increase and enhances its use cases and usability. What is interesting about this architecture is that an investor can own part of the base layer of this new technology and can be relatively agnostic about what specific applications are built on top of it. It would be akin to being able to own the base layer of the internet and getting exposure to all of the innovation on top, for example, Google, Amazon, etc., without having to try to pick the specific winners and losers. Bitcoin is aiming to satisfy a clear market need. Of course, we do not know what the new digital asset system will look like as it continues to mature, or whether we will see a multi-chain world of different tokens with varying degrees of centralization, 
or if we will see a winner-take-all approach, where more applications are built on the most secure and decentralized chain. However, it appears at this point that Bitcoin has found a role in the digital asset ecosystem as a scarce store-of-value asset at the very least. The ability for all of the other digital assets to fulfill some other necessary use case remains to be seen, in our opinion. The same cannot be said for Bitcoin. This creates far different risk-return investment profiles between Bitcoin and all other digital assets, and ultimately should impact how allocators consider incorporating each into their investment portfolios. Digital Assets Place in a Portfolio Investors working through their understanding of the digital asset ecosystem and creating a framework for considering investment in the space are likely to benefit from segmenting Bitcoin and all other digital asset investments as separate decisions. This simplifies the portfolio construction process and allows for two simultaneous yet separate decisions to be made by allocators. The importance of holding exposure to the scarcest monetary asset in this emerging digital asset category, Bitcoin, while also considering the potential for exposure to the innovation and experimentation ongoing within the ecosystem outside of Bitcoin. In order to understand the proper place of Bitcoin and non-Bitcoin tokens in a traditional investment portfolio, investors must first derive the key risk and return drivers of their respective investment theses. This makes it possible to delineate the two and draw a conclusion upon the potential role each could play within an otherwise traditional portfolio. Bitcoin's risks, potential sources of return, and role in a portfolio. The first mover advantage led to a lack of true competition for Bitcoin's primary use case as a monetary asset and a store of value, and creates a drastically different return profile for Bitcoin investors. Many of the risks that could have been used to create a case for the demise of Bitcoin are now gone, and each day the network grows stronger with more users, miners, and infrastructure being built. Almost every risk that Bitcoin still holds today can also be seen amongst every other digital asset, with nation-state attacks and protocol bugs being two of the most notable network risks. Protocol Bugs The potential for a vulnerability in any code is always a present threat. This problem can be mitigated by keeping the particular software simple and engaging in thorough review and scrutiny of the code. In Bitcoin's case, it is arguably the least likely protocol to encounter a major bug at this stage in its life given it has existed longer than any other project, holds an intentionally simplistic code, and has a now $1 trillion bounty for anyone capable of exploiting it. Nation-state attacks Another valid risk to the Bitcoin thesis is the potential for large countries to oppose the growth of the digital asset ecosystem. The geopolitical landscape to date has made proper regulation appear far more likely than outlawing these assets. In any case, Bitcoin is best positioned to defend itself against coordinated attacks due to its prioritization of decentralization. 
The risks Bitcoin faces today appear lower in comparison with all other digital assets, given the lack of code complexity and emphasis on decentralization. Little to no true competition for its primary use case and 13 years of operating as the store of value token help to harden the case that Bitcoin will continue to exist as the bedrock of the digital asset ecosystem. In other words, it's not that we think an allocation to Bitcoin does not come without risks, but that we think some investors are overestimating the downside risks of Bitcoin when compared to other digital assets. We also think some investors may be doing the same with the return side of the equation, but in the opposite direction, as they may be underestimating the potential returns to Bitcoin compared to other digital assets. There is some merit to this idea, as Bitcoin with a market capitalization of around a trillion dollars may have a harder time appreciating by a factor of 100 compared to its early history, when it did go up by a factor of 100 more than once, but from a much smaller market capitalization base. However, these rewards were accompanied by a lot more risk at the time. As described above, Bitcoin's level of risk has been dramatically reduced from its very early days. Furthermore, we think the return potential for Bitcoin is still very sizable. Bitcoin's return portfolio is driven by two strong tailwinds. The growth of the digital asset ecosystem and the potential instability of traditional macroeconomic conditions. These return tailwinds are likely to be captured in an easier way with less risk than via the majority of other digital assets. Growth of the Digital Asset Ecosystem As money flows throughout the entire asset class, the store of value standard gains further legitimacy and importance. Every project, token, or piece of infrastructure being built and funded is expanding the use case and value associated with having a neutral, scarce, digital reserve asset. While other tokens benefit from money that flows indirectly towards the space, Bitcoin is the easiest way to benefit from this growth. As discussed earlier, Bitcoin's lack of competition for being recognized as the preeminent store of value asset means there is little threat to its current stronghold on being the ecosystem's money. Much of the growth associated with the build-out of all digital assets is good for Bitcoin. Potential Instability of Traditional Macro Conditions The increasing use of monetary and fiscal policy as a way to provide support for ongoing economic growth may give rise to concerns about the overall stability of the financial system and the ability for the economy to stand on its own. The buildup of these policies has led to never-before-seen global sovereign debt levels. Leverage has historically driven financial systems toward fragility. One such potential outcome as a result of the current situation is a path of financial repression, negative real interest rates. These types of macro environments have historically tended to benefit scarce assets whose supply cannot be altered. For example, gold's outperformance in the most recent episode of high inflation and therefore negative real interest rates in the late 1970s. 
In the digital asset world, Bitcoin's rule set, historical precedents, and decentralization have created the greatest level of scarcity of any digital asset protocol. This makes a compelling case as the greatest available hedge for some of the potential headwinds facing the legacy financial system. Given the ability to hedge potential outcomes associated with traditional assets and capture overall ecosystem growth, Bitcoin becomes a simple and efficient way to gain exposure to the digital asset ecosystem. Non-Bitcoin Risks and Return Drivers Many investors often cite the potential for extremely advantageous returns as their reason for overweighting alternative or non-Bitcoin digital assets, and in some cases omitting Bitcoin entirely from their portfolio. While this potential return profile may exist for certain digital assets, it's important to consider that these projects also often come with greater overall risks and a meaningful chance of the token becoming worthless if it fails to live up to expectations. The risks with non-Bitcoin tokens certainly ranges on a case-by-case -case basis and tends to become more extreme in longer-tail, more speculative tokens. However, many of these risks are still shared amongst the majority of these projects. A few key risks are noted below. Exhibiting adequate decentralization. Bitcoin's proof-of-work algorithm, governance structure, and fair launch created the grounds for a decentralized project with minimal trust required. Other tokens have alternative consensus mechanisms, governance structures, and token launches, which often reduce their level of decentralization. Since it is one of the key value propositions being promised by the majority of these protocols, investors should consider how decentralized their particular project actually is. A lack of adequate decentralization makes a particular protocol more susceptible to regulatory oversight and impairs users' rights. The threat of competition. Differentiation becomes difficult with open source code when one platform is able to copy and build upon the shortcomings of another. Historically, we have witnessed many failed projects and the turnover amongst the most valuable 10 or 20 coins has been extreme. Protocols must build a large enough network effect around their given use case in hopes that they can defend themselves against competitors, since almost every non-Bitcoin network is attempting to add some level of scalability or functionality to their base layer to prove their worth. The return drivers of all non-Bitcoin digital assets are also much different, given that protocols are forced to make certain trade-offs to enhance speed, functionality, and other characteristics to warrant a use case. Encompassed within all non-Bitcoin digital assets is the most important driver of returns. Attracting developers and creating network effects. Projects which have shown the ability to be successful and create something promising have done so by bringing the proper talent on board and retaining their user base. Ethereum and Solana provide a great example of what is possible for a protocol that can attract a large amount of developers, build a usable platform, and gain a loyal network of users. When done right, there is clearly a lot of value that can be created for investors. 
given the increased amount of competition and potential paths of failure for many of these projects. Allocating to non-Bitcoin tokens is often done with a venture capital-like mindset. Instead of picking one particular project, investment allocators typically take small positions across many individual names. This typically results in seeking out an actively managed solution to deal with the increase in overall complexity. Again, showing a stark contrast to a simple Bitcoin-only approach to this digital asset space. Conclusion Traditional investors typically apply a technology investing framework to Bitcoin, leading to the conclusion Bitcoin as a first-mover technology will easily be supplanted by a superior one or have lower returns. However, as we have argued here, Bitcoin's first technological breakthrough was not as a superior payment technology, but as a superior form of money. As a monetary good, Bitcoin is unique. Therefore, not only do we believe investors should consider Bitcoin first in order to understand digital assets, but that Bitcoin should be considered first and separate from all other digital assets that have come after it. And that'll do it. That'll wrap up Bitcoin first from Fidelity Digital Assets. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor, and I have a long guy's take for this one. And our sponsor is the reliable, the automatic, the easy to use, the always there to stack for you, Swan Bitcoin. As I said recently, I just upped my weekly stack. I'm very proud of that, that I can do that now. And it is very easy to do. You go to the website. You punch in your information. Well, I didn't have to because I was already signed up, obviously. I have an account. But you punch in your information. You tell it how much you want to save every, every day, every week, every month, whatever your increment is. And, uh, and you just stack. You just have ongoing stacks. And I have mine every single week. It comes in and I buy. And obviously, I go over there and smash buy all the time, too. You know, you get a big fat red candle. And it's really, really hard not to just go throw all of the money that I was going to use for eating food into Bitcoin and know that, you know, I could go a week without food and then at the end of this I have more sats. That's a, yeah, that's a good deal, you know. I'm not that hungry. Cheap sats. Cheap sats are hard to come by, man. You got to take it while you can get it. Swan makes it all easy, makes it all intuitive, makes it all automatic. And while other exchanges and services and coinbase or whatever they want to leave they want you to leave your money on there they make it hard to withdraw they make it they don't they don't care about teaching you how to hold your keys they want you to buy nfts and trade a bunch of crypto crap no swan bitcoin wants you to withdraw they let you do it automatically they send it directly to your keys and they even pay the online the on-chain fee to do so so that you get exactly what you purchased on the platform now that is a deal that is somebody who cares about making sure you hold your own keys, that you are not even trusting them, and that they are there simply to make sure that you get your Bitcoin automatically and regularly and get it in your possession safe for your future self and your future life. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy. 
uh, will support the show. They'll, they'll know that I sent you there. And most importantly, it will support your future with an automatic Bitcoin savings plan. With that, let's jump back in. And I just want to say, you know, for a large, for a massive legacy financial institution, I have been shocked, basically, at how clear their position and understanding of Bitcoin has since back in 2014 when they started showing interest in it. And they have still had the mentality of a, a, a large, like, intelligent institution of taking their time to move through this. They mined back in, like, 2014 and 2015 and slowly built up the digital assets group and then continued to, like, kind of lay a foundation and continue to put out these reports that are phenomenal, that have, that aren't looking at this from the, the typical, what I think of as the cheap perspective of which tech stock is this, um, but actually look at it from fundamentals, from like a foundational level. It's like, what is this actually? What problem is it solving? And how to relate it to everything else in the digital asset space. And, you know, we've covered a number of different pieces that essentially cover this, uh, dynamic, I guess, this uh, comparison between the two. Um, you know, we read Nick Bhatia's piece not too long ago on uh, Bitcoin and crypto are not the same thing. Um, and I think, you know, if you go into quote unquote crypto, if you go into the digital asset space, everybody who is in crypto does not understand that, that the fundamental difference here is believing is, is the misunderstanding between a monetary system or a monetary good and a payment network with some subset of features or a service with some subset of utility. And I don't think it's that they don't understand which one is more valuable. It's that almost everyone I speak to in crypto doesn't understand that there is a difference, that Bitcoin is solving a different problem than what all of the whole philosophy of crypto, like the only thing in their space of thinking is venture capital startup, which tech is going to be the big thing which one's the amazon here which one's the the you know flashiest service with the best features and the best payment network when that is fundamentally not what's being solved that is it, it's it is to literally dismiss the revolutionary thing that bitcoin does in place of oh i can do a better visa like payment networks are the least interesting thing about what bitcoin does even if it was a payment network that somehow competed with Visa, that it could do 2,000 transactions per second, it could scale up to 40,000 or 50,000 transactions per second at the base layer as it was designed at the beginning, that still would be largely irrelevant. That would not be the important thing that Bitcoin did. It still would not be what I was interested in it for. It would be great if you could do that at the exact same time, but as this piece very obviously detailed um, or very clearly detailed was the blockchain trilemma. The fact that you cannot, there is something fundamental about a broad decentralized consensus that means the, the, the way to achieve the most robust, most widespread, most secure, and most decentralized, the highest participation consensus 
is for whatever is required within the consensus rules to be a small amount of data. The smaller the amount of data required to reach consensus on that set of rules, then the broader and the more decentralized that consensus can be. And in the context of digital scarcity, when we are talking about something that is independent, stateless money, money that is truly owned by no one, understand that the payment network value is totally irrelevant if the monetary assurances, if the base rules that define what the good is, what the unit of a Bitcoin is and secure that properly, then it's nothing. It's nothing without that. Payment network necessarily comes later. For the reason that we don't build cool payment networks with lots of features in order to make dirt more valuable, we build payment networks on the valuable thing. No one builds payment networks for dirt because dirt isn't valuable. It's not a good money. It's not, there's no reason to have payments in it. And you're not going to go the opposite direction. You're not going to build the best payment network with all the best features in the smart contracts that trade dirt and think that that means the dirt has value. It's, it's completely backwards, in my opinion. In all of my thinking and everything I've read and understood about the, the base principles that go into this thing and make money something, the history of money and why it exists, that is fundamentally the exact opposite of the correct thinking. Of the, of the derivation of store of value to medium of, uh, medium of exchange to unit of account. It's like thinking that you can design the plane to defy gravity rather than understanding gravity in order to design your plane. Like the value must come first and the monetary good, the underlying thing that is being exchanged must first be worth something for a smart contract agreement with it to matter. And as a digital asset, part of a digital network, the rules are the only things that define it. Anybody can edit it. Just like, just like they said, you know, in this, in this piece, anybody can edit what is on their computer. It is about the consensus of the rules that establish it as something with rules. That's the only reason any of the assurances, any of the game theory, any of the mining reward or cost is involved at all. It is all a derivative of the rules. If only two people are, con are uh, actually confirming the rules or actually validating the entire Bitcoin network rather than hundreds of thousands of people or maybe even millions of people, if it's only two, why would they mine? Why mine? There's no, you only mine because the rules say you have to mine. If you're the one that decides what the rules are, there's no reason to have a cost. You are already fully trusted. A digital thing is fully and completely editable. My Bitcoin client can be changed to whatever the hell I want it to be. The only reason I cannot do that is because of a broad, decentralized global consensus that makes my client incompatible if I do. Without the rules being validated, Bitcoin doesn't exist. It's just a spreadsheet on a computer somewhere. If there is anything I can get across to the people who think this is about payment networks and smart contracts and more and more features and flashy wing digits, it is that. Without broad validation and without 
fundamental consensus rules being enforced by everybody, you have nothing. It is nothing but a spreadsheet that you are putting JavaScript features on. But let's get more into directly uh, a lot of the things that Fidelity brought up in this piece that uh, Chris and um, uh, Jack brought up in this piece um, because there's, there's a lot of really great little quotations in this. So the first one that I saved, the first section of this is all talking about how Bitcoin is a monetary good. And it even has the chart, which I kind of read out on the sh uh, uh, in the actual read, but it is basically just a chart with gold, Bitcoin, and fiat currency showing which ones have the characteristics of money. And I think this is something... This is something that is supremely misunderstood or basically there's no educational foundation whatsoever in the general public as to what money is. And, and that's why I think, you know, going back to my example of why I think crypto has a completely incorrect mindset of this is this, oh, we're investing in a technology startup and it's all about move fast and break things and build as many features out and get as much hype and marketing as possible. Whereas Fidelity rightfully frames this from the first three pages on making sense of why Bitcoin is actually money. It is, it is best understood and its value proposition is, uh, is grasped as a credible, immutable monetary policy. That is what Bitcoin has done. That's what it has created that is fundamentally um, revolutionary that is something that is unique in all other contexts and unique against all other digital assets none of them have credible monetary policies some of them brag and boast about having the quote-unquote best monetary policy at the time i mean ethereum literally says their monetary policy is minimum viable inflation which says it is managed by a group of people who decide what the hell that means that is the least objective monetary policy one could ever come up with. It literally, it is in the definition of saying exactly those words, this is subjective and decided by some subset of people. That's not a monetary policy. That's a political promise. That's, that is exactly what the Fed is. That is everything that our current monetary policy in fiat is. A promise to have a good monetary policy. That is why we go back to what I was just talking about is that Immutability is only, is only a product of Bitcoin or is only a characteristic of Bitcoin because of extremely broad decentralization. It's because there is, so, there, there is such an incentive and such a broad foundation of people validating the entire rules such that none of them can be cheated, such that no one who is validating can be undermined can those rules be undermined in the face of their software in any way, shape, or form? It's top to bottom. Nobody can change the third or second block in the entire blockchain and have these nodes not know about it. Nobody can change the monetary policy and these nodes don't reject it. Um, like every single attempt to change anything about consensus, about the rules that define what a Bitcoin is, is immediately and unequivocally rejected. It is evicted from the network and disconnected from every single person who is running a node. That is the security of Bitcoin. Now, the hash rate is, in fact, a security aspect too, but the hash rate is a derivative of that. It only exists because of the robustness of the nodes, of the validation itself. 
if nobody is doing validation, nobody needs to do the mining. The only reason it requires, the only reason miners have to mine the coins is because the rules say so. If nobody's checking the rules, if nobody's validating the rules, if you aren't evicted for violating the rules, there's no reason to hash anything. There isn't, proof of work is completely useless. They, again, are a function of the rules, which means the validation, the foundation of the users running the code, is what makes Bitcoin immutable, is what makes all the rules the relevant rules. And so the quote that I have here is, quote, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. No other digital asset possesses an immutable monetary policy on the level of Bitcoin. In other words, Bitcoin's monetary policy may be viewed as the most credible. That is, all, that is what all of this is about. This is a monetary good with an inalterable, perfectly defined, provable monetary policy. No ambiguity, no subjectivity, none. Bitcoin is 21 million, period. Everything in how that is achieved and in that single characteristic, everything in that is where the revolutionary element of Bitcoin lies. And I think the, the people who fail to see that, who fail to understand that the strength and the credibility of that monetary policy is everything that makes Bitcoin valuable and everything else. All the features, the smart contracts, the payment network, lightning, everything is downstream from that. This is what I think people completely fail to understand. This is what I think all of the crypto people and the VC tech startup sphere has completely dismissed and is putting themselves, I think, in a very bad position because they are printing money in order to build, <clears throat> excuse me, they are printing a token, they are creating a monetary unit while failing to understand that it is a monetary unit, while failing to understand its monetary properties and what makes the money valid, credible from the get-go. But they are creating the money in order to create the network so that they can build this like a tech startup and then the money is just arbitrary. The money is simply there so that they can get rich. That's it. They just want a token that they can print for free and sell as essentially some form of like weird, you know, SEC, external to the SEC security or equity in this network that they believe has utility. That is where I think the biggest disconnect happens. And because of that, they aren't competing with Bitcoin. They don't even, the, the monetary policy is arbitrary. Like for so many of these, it's just like, oh, ours is scarcer or ours is proof of stake and it's only 1%. Like it's just kind of an afterthought. And then they just talk about like transactions per second and, oh, we can do this smart contract. We've got NFTs and everybody's bragging about doing NFTs better than Ethereum. And all of, the, all of the monetary foundation, all of the credibility and the assurances and the lack of trust in actually establishing a real, true digital money is like lost. It's just, it's just completely dismissed. And then they will, and, and even better is they'll actually turn around and use that foundation, completely ignoring all of the revolutionary aspects of Bitcoin, completely ignoring the very 
thing that makes it unique, that makes it a breakthrough as a technological system, the monetary aspects, and then they criticize Bitcoin from a VC tech startup perspective. Oh, it's got few transactions per second when they've not even, they've completely failed to understand the fundamental value in the first place. Of course, then you end up with Bitcoin having 50 to 60% of the entire market cap of the ocean of crypto crap, while the entire cryptosphere is dead certain that despite the overwhelming and incredible success of Bitcoin in the face of all of these other coins, that it's just kind of a random, it's just, oh, it's bound to die. It's, it's definitely dying tomorrow. Look how few transactions per second it does. When in reality, the comparison is, is exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. Look how uncredible all of the other monetary policies are. Every one of them is forced to, they are creating a token based on nothing whose only value can be a monetary premium. And they are ignoring everything that makes it a good money. I don't, know, I don't want to harp on this for like an hour's worth of guy's take, but it just, it, it fascinates me that this continues to be such a huge disconnect. And I still have conversations with people who, who have been in quote-unquote crypto for years and do not understand the most basic argument for what Bitcoin is. It is money. It is money. And no, that is not some arbitrary, like, half-utility thing. That is the most important utility of any and all utilities. It is, in, in any economic system, the good that becomes the fundamental monetary good, the base monetary good of that economic system, is the most valuable good in the system. By definition, it is the most liquid, the most valuable, and the most desirable of all other goods because it is the good that allows you to measure and gain access to every other good. The money, it's not just that like money is a decent value proposition. Money is the value proposition of society. One does not have society without a money. This is the very tool that enables society to happen. So you're talking about something that is the crux. It is the, the hinge on whether or not society exists or doesn't exist. Whether we live in groups of 50 people and 100 people in tribes and we barter, or we have a money that allows us to build out a vast, complex, multifaceted, multilingual, multicultural civilization. That is the value of money. It's not like some half-assed little side channels utility that, oh, well, payment networks are great. Payment networks are fucking nothing. They're nice to have after you build out the foundation of a civilization. That is what a payment network is. It's something that just makes things easier down the road. Having a strong, sound money is whether or not you have a civilization at all. Whether you have one that is sustainable or if you have one that is poisoned, you have a bad money that builds up a astronomical, you know, civilization-sized debt bubble that collapses the entire supply structure and the entire uh, economic calculation mechanism and everybody starves. Like in Argentina and Turkey and in uh, Zimbabwe, everywhere you have seen money fail, guess what happens? Civilization dies. It dies. Money 
is a necessity. It is the crux of civilization's existence. To say that is not a utility, to say that that does not have value, that the credibility of whether or not it is a good money is not important, and talk about crypto kitties and NFTs is so deeply ignorant that it is almost laughable. Like I, I can't, you know, and I don't mean, I don't mean that in like a really derogatory way, but genuinely when someone tells me, oh, it's out of thin air, it has no value, Bitcoin isn't good for anything because you can't make NFTs with it, which is hilarious because you can make NFTs with it, you can do smart contracts. Even this report gets that wrong, but we'll get into that in a second. But when they talk about that, all I can all I can see is that like they're saying, yeah, civilization is of no value, but man, NFTs though, JPEGs, JPEGs for the win. And I just I giggle. I, I literally have a hard time. I feel like I've internalized that understanding of what money is so deeply. It's like saying that like your language is of absolutely no value whatsoever, but what, what, slang, slang is where it's at. It's like, bitch, you don't have slang if you don't have a language, you moron. <laughs> anyway, I'm not, I'm not trying to shit on people here. I just, uh, oh, it's hard not to get, not to get amped up about it. Anyway, so that was, um, Bitcoin has a credible monetary, monetary policy. So that was, um, that was that quote. And it's also kind of the next little section is, Kind of, kind of in the same vein, really. Um, but it's also just like really cool the the incentive structure and the game theory of Bitcoin. When you have rules that cannot be changed, where the incentives to change the fundamental consensus and the fundamental monetary policy of the entire system is so incredibly difficult. It's so incredibly strong for things to reach consensus as opposed to break consensus. You're talking about the ability to keep an economic system together rather than fall apart through the game theory incentives of how you define that economic system. That is incredible. That is what Bitcoin does. And there is no, there's like, it says in this thing, it's like, uh, you know, there would not be an economic interest of the current network participants to raise or adjust the supply cap as it would only inflate the supply of Bitcoin and dilute the value of their holdings. And the same thing with the miners. The miners want their rewards to be valuable. And if it doesn't have a credible monetary policy, then it's just a digital spreadsheet. So, quote, here we see the powerful effects of game theory at work, as it is in the best interest of all participants to coordinate, cooperate, and not change the supply cap. That's the value of Bitcoin. That is the value of what sound money does. That is the, the potent innovation of this system, is developing a game theory, a set of rules, excuse me, developing a set of rules for governing a network and creating a money that then establishes a game theory that creates incredible pressure for people to coordinate and cooperate rather than be at each other's throats, rather than having pointless contentiousness about the monetary policy or about something. I mean, look, as soon as it enters into the social sphere, look how messy and 
crap it is. Imagine if the monetary policy was something we had to decide every few years. It's the block size war all over again. Right? As soon as, as, soon as it became part of the social sphere, that if anybody has not, by the way, if anybody has not actually dug into the history of the block size war and this is your only primer on it, you've got to. You've got to. You have no idea how important that is in the, the context of Bitcoin's history. It is everything that makes Bitcoin powerful and every incentive played out in real time. There are, there are a thousand incredible lessons about what Bitcoin is and how Bitcoin works embedded in the block size war and its outcome. It is the most important part of Bitcoin history in order to understand if you want to grasp how Bitcoin works and why Bitcoin is truly revolutionary. In my opinion, it is a it is an absolute precursor. Um, ex excuse me, a uh, prerequisite, a prerequisite to grasping the fundamentals of Bitcoin. So uh, I read the audiobook of the block size wars or, or the block size war, excuse me, by Jonathan Beer, who's at BitMEX Research. Um, and it is a phenomenal book. Uh, like I said, it's an absolute must. Um, I'm not going to really go into, I mean, I could, God, I could ramble about the block size war for 10 episodes if, if I just decided to go for it. Um, but uh, definitely listen to that book if you, or read the book or get, get a physical copy of the book too, whichever, you know, tickles your fancy there. Um, but definitely read it, definitely go through it. It is, it is phenomenal. And like I said, it's the most important thing that ever happened in Bitcoin, in my opinion. But, um, to move forward with this. So the, the logic and the foundation of all of this that they kind of start with, they, they hit the step-by-step -step logic of why Bitcoin is a good, is a monetary good. And this is one of those things that I think even Peter Schiff doesn't seem to understand this, which blows my mind because he understands so much about other economics and things like that. But this, the disconnect here just gets me. I, I don't even understand. But the first point is what I highlighted, and it says, a monetary good is something that has value attributed to it above and beyond its utility or consumption value. The very notion of something being a monetary, this is not a quote anymore, the very notion of something being a monetary good is that it sustains value above its utility. So when people say it doesn't have intrinsic value, they're literally saying like, like the thing itself that has value is not utility. You can't use it for making jewelry. You can't eat it, whatever the hell it is. When people use that as a criticism of Bitcoin, what they're literally saying is, oh, it's just a money. That's what, that's essentially that argument because that is what a monetary good is. It is that thing in society that is scarce enough, that is portable and divisible enough that operates in such a way and can maintain value in such a way because of its scarcity that it achieves a value premium above and irrespective to its utility or consumption. That is how one defines, that is how you look at a good and realize it's become a monetary good. That's how you do it. We're only halfway through the quote. So the other part was, although Bitcoin's payment network certainly has utility value, people are also ascribing a monetary premium value to the Bitcoin tokens. 
And then the other four points, or the other three points, excuse me, of their their logic is just, you know, the reasons they attribute value is because of its scarcity. Fixed supply means that it can be a store of value. You can attribute more value to it, and the supply cannot adjust. Therefore, Bitcoin can actually be sustained. It can it can hold enormous amounts of value without being threatened by new supply incoming into the system because the supply schedule is perfectly fixed. It is perfectly limited. That is exactly how a store of value is created or what makes a store of value useful is the fact that it is scarce enough that when you store value in it and a lot of other people store value in it with you, its supply doesn't skyrocket because it became more valuable, which in any other context, it would, like, or any other good gold, if gold went to $20,000 or $30,000 an ounce, you, people would be finding gold everywhere because suddenly it would be worth spending $10,000 to find an ounce because you could sell it for 20. Suddenly it might actually be worth it to use enormous amounts of nuclear radiation and irradiate gold, I mean, excuse me, irradiate lead or mercury into gold. The only reason those things, it would, not be, it would not be worthwhile to make more gold out of those things, even though technically we could with enough energy, is because it would cost too much. Your gold at the end of the, after expending all of that energy, all of that proof of work, your gold would be worth less than everything that it took, all the inputs it took to get the gold. That is actually the value of gold is actually the limitation on its supply. And the fact that it takes enormous amounts of resources in order to go find or mine the supply that is there. There is still plenty of supply out there. Gold is still pretty prevalent, but it's all so hard to find, to sift through, to, to, to get, to, to actually access, that it stays in balance with its monetary premium. But that is why Bitcoin's immutable limited monetary policy, completely unchanging monetary schedule is so potent in the ability to, or in the case for it becoming the primary monetary good, which Fidelity actually makes in this piece. Another thing they point out that's super important is that monetary network effects are extremely powerful. Now we're used to network effects you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe not so much. But now with the internet, with the birth of the networked architecture of our global communications system, we understand, we, we are far, far more aware of and cognizant of the incredible power of having a dominant network. The cohesion around the, not the cohesion, um... The consolidation around singular networks, uh, the, the ability to consolidate onto one language, the ability to consolidate all onto Amazon, the consolidation onto the major social media platforms, etc., etc. The difference is monetary networks, monetary networks are not different in the context that they do not have exactly the same monetary, uh, the same network effects as all of those other things. They do. But in fact, it's actually more potent. It's more potent because it is specifically exclusive. You can only hold the, a certain unit of value in one network at a time. 
and the store of value that becomes the dominant, the one that becomes the dominant monetary good, ultimately has a larger and larger risk and larger trade-off to select any alternative store of value when the dominant one is actually safer, more secure, and a better store of value because more people use it as a store of value. And you can only choose one at a time. Now, I can use Twitter and Facebook at the same time. I can speak English and Chinese and German. I can be multilingual, but I can't hold the same unit of value in Bitcoin, in the dollar, in Ethereum, in Solana, whatever, at the same time. I specifically have to choose. It is the nature of value, which means that every single unit of value that I store one place is at the explicit cost of not putting it somewhere else. Whereas me using a social network, me using Facebook is not explicitly at the cost of my telephone. I can still pick up my telephone and call somebody. I can be on the phone while I'm not listening to the person I'm having a conversation with and just be messaging people on Facebook. Those things can happen at the same time. They're communications mediums, but in the nature of information, everything can be duplicated and copy-pasted all over the place. I can use many different communication mediums all at once. Or like, like in the office, you could woof. <laughs> you could, if everybody remembers that stupid episode where, um, uh, what's his face? Uh, uh, Brian made the woof where you do a fax and you send a text and a tweet and a blah, 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 like all at once. Like you can use them all at the exact same time. Money is fundamentally different. Money is fundamentally exclusive. You can only have value in one at the cost of the other. Therefore, the trade-off, the risk of not being in the dominant store of value, the further you get into the establishing of it as money, the greater the cost. And it only gets worse over time. And I think Bitcoin as the foundation and the most credible monetary network and the most credible monetary policy has basically, has not even been close to contested. And I don't think DeFi and NFTs, I don't think they're even in the same boat. I think they compete with, I don't know, Google maybe? I don't know. It compete, it's a platform. It is not competing as a monetary network. It is competing as a casino token to an exclusive casino. To a casino where you have to get their tokens first in order to use it. And it happens to be an incredibly popular casino with all sorts of games and widgets and you know DeFi smart contract lending staking blah 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 it's tons of fun and it's making shitloads of people enormous amounts of money but i think it competes with wall street i think it competes with nasdaq i i think it competes with all of the other casinos out there but it is not competing for a credible immutable monetary policy because it explicitly states it doesn't have one and scarce does not mean credible. Low inflation rate does not mean immutable or scarce. The immutability of the monetary policy, the credibility of the monetary schedule, is completely in the, the difficulty of changing the, the fundamental consensus rules, and thus the decentralization of the network itself, of the consensus rules. That doesn't mean a bunch of half nodes. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, how many millions of light nodes or how many people hold their own keys because the keys are also a derivative of the rules. 
It is about how many people are fully validating the entire consensus architecture. Everyone else is making a trade-off to trust some aspect of the system or that its maintainers will keep it that way, which, which, is, which is the same thing we've always done. All right, there's, a, there's another section in here. I need to get through this quicker. Jesus. Um, uh, let's see. Or a quote, excuse me. So the quote, the phrase, don't reinvent the wheel. I really like this one. The don't reinvent the wheel is so common it has become cliche. Nevertheless, we think this applies to Bitcoin as a digital monetary good. The invention of the wheel represented an entirely new technology that once invented could never be reinvented. Similarly, never before in human history had the problem of digital scarcity and a true peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash been solved until Bitcoin was invented. Solving this problem was not merely an incremental improvement, but a leap forward or an unlocking of the puzzle of how digital scarcity could exist. This is such a great way to put it, I feel like, is, and, and for the risk of just being cliche, it is reinventing the wheel. It's, it, it's making a wheel that's thinner or thicker, wider, or taller or something like, like it's, it's arbitrary. The wheel is the invention. Like, sure, you can mold it to whatever shape you think is better, but the consistency, the, the idea of trying to copy and paste this network to have every other thing and then try to pretend all these other potential utilities or use cases and then pretend it's not also just a wheel, I think is just completely missing the point. That is what this thing is valuable for. And it's the strength and the assurance of its monetary policy and its consensus rules is exactly what makes it a wheel, is exactly what makes it a, a profound innovation in the context of money. And going back to the blockchain trilemma, which is kind of the next section this thing gets into um, shortly after this, is that they're trading off the fundamental characteristics that make it a good wheel in order to, I don't know, make it lighter or something. It, the analogy falls apart. But essentially, the reason it is, a, it is digitally, digitally scarce, that it is a valuable token in the digital sphere that can be independently verified and secured, is because of two parts, two sides of the blockchain trilemma. It is the decentralization and the security. Those are the only two things that make it a money. That's it. The scalability is the thing that makes it a payment network, that makes it a medium of exchange. But it must be a money first. There are a million different ways to make a payment network. There are, you know, uh, oh, which was this? Parker Lewis, Parker Lewis. This is one of the Parker Lewis's pieces um, in the Gradually Then Suddenly series about how Bitcoin is a zero to one innovation, yet the payment problem is a one to infinity. You know, there's no, like, everybody's trying to make a better blockchain that does a thousand transactions per second is completely missing the point. There's no end to the payment network being good enough. There's no point where every single time we reach some new level of scalability where a billion users can do a million different things on this network and do some subset of transactions, well, we will just fill that out. We will, we will meet the demand with the the subsequent price or the capital required in order to execute all of those payments. 
which means we'll never be done scaling. If, if we get to a point where we have scaled such that almost, every, almost all transactions are free, we'll just figure out what thing that we could do that could do billions of transactions because they're free. Like it won't be, it will, will no longer be a barrier to the reasons that we could use it. It's, it's very much like saying, to say that we'll just get to a point where the payment network is done is like saying that we'll get to a point where people just won't want more things. It is, it's like saying that we'll reach a point in the economy where there is no more growth and there is no pro progress because we just reached the finish line. It's simply not true. As soon as we get to a point where we're comfortable or we've solved some subset of problems, all we end up with are a new subset of problems and we have this new layer of uh, things that we expect, this, these, these things that we no longer are thankful for because they, uh, because they became normal to us. And now our entire scope of desire is just above and beyond all the things that are normal. It's the nature of desire. It is the nature of human existence to only desire, to only crave that which we don't have. To, to simply see where what could be, there's, there's never a point where better it doesn't exist. And in that same way, there's never a point where more transactions are not needed. The idea of even trying to tackle this problem at the base layer is absurd when you specifically, when you recognize that you're trading off security and decentralization, which is again, like trying to make a payment network to make dirt more valuable rather than trying to find something of valuable Right, uh, trying to find something of value or that is valuable in order to build out a payment network for it. Like I said at the beginning, it is backwards. It's the reverse logic of value. And now this is actually the first time that I actually disagree with this report. There's a quote in here that says, none of the characteristics above are in and of themselves better than the other. It depends on the use case. Some users may favor scalability over decentralization or vice versa. Our only point here is to understand that there is an inherent trade-off. And he's talking about the blockchain trilemma is that scalability isn't like necessarily better or decentralization isn't necessarily better, et cetera, et cetera. And I disagree for basically, and you know, with my bias, whatever, I'm obviously Bitcoin only, everybody knows the show, but regardless, I think it's goes right back to the point I just made, to the idea of the payment network making the thing valuable rather than the thing being the reason why we want a payment network. Fundamentally, a payment network has utility. A payment network is great. We have thousands, we have millions of payment networks all over the place. We have payment apps, we have Visa, we have credit cards, we have checks, we have uh, ATMs. I mean, like all of these things are various forms of payment networks. There's millions of them. Like, they're all over the freaking place. But we have one money. Well, in a general sense, we're, we're talking about the dollar here. We're talking about the dominant money in the United States because of, you know, bias, that's where I am, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, all of these networks, these networks don't have their own tokens, right? They all use the token that makes it worthwhile to have the payment network. Visa is there so that we can send dollars really, really fast. Visa doesn't have Visa tokens that says... My Visa tokens are worth more because my Visa network is bigger. That wouldn't work. As soon as Visa had their own token, they would collapse and MasterCard and Discover and whoever else would take over. Visa would lose their dominance if they weren't using the dominant money because what everybody wants is the money. And they want that money to have utility. They want, it to, be, they want to be able to use it with payments. They want to be able to send it and receive it very, very quickly. That is why the 
incentive, the economic incentive to build a payment network exists in the first place. And in that context, sure, the payment network has utility. Scalability is a great thing and it is important. But there are a million different ways to achieve that. Decentralization and security are the only way to achieve a digital cash. Sure, they can be traded off for scalability in the blockchain trilemma, but you don't have a block. There's no reason for a blockchain if you don't have decentralization and scalability. I mean, uh, decentralization and security. The only reason the blockchain is needed is to create decentralization and security. That's that's the very the fundamental reason that is the structure of Bitcoin, is for the validation, for the consensus rules, and for the network. If you are giving those things up, if you are giving up security and decentralization to get scalability, then you're just in a place where it's unbelievably stupid to try to use a blockchain. Visa isn't going to work better or get more customers if they use a blockchain. Visa payments aren't going to be any better if they use a blockchain. It's just that's simply not what the job of the blockchain is for. The architecture of it is all about decentralization and security. It's its fundamental purpose. It's like trying to use, I don't know, a, a German tank as a grocery cart or trying to use a bank vault as a gym bag. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. As soon as you're admitting that your purpose is to have a good grocery cart or a good gym bag, you take bank vaults off the table. Bank vaults are for unbelievable security. Trying to fidget with and redesign the thing to make it a good gym bag is just nonsensical. But you know, if there's a ton of marketing hype around bank vaults, well then yeah, maybe you want to repurpose bank vaults for every damn thing in society because you think you're going to make a absolute boatload of money and when everybody's ignorant and you're you know you just get vc money like crazy and you're in an insanely cheap money environment where interest rates are zero and the government's just printing trillions and trillions of dollars to desperately attempt to prop up this massive bubble of inflated dollars yeah maybe that's all you need maybe that's all you need is a bunch of hype and people who don't understand what they're looking at well enough to see that this isn't exactly the tool for the job. I mean, that's exactly what we're seeing with Web3 and NFTs. You know, people are literally buying URLs. You know, if you haven't, if you haven't listened to that episode, um, highly recommend it. Uh, Moxie Marlin Spike um, dug into the Web3. Uh, the article is called My First Impressions of Web3. Um, and then I actually did a follow-up. Well, not really a follow-up, but just a, I guess you could say a response to that and digging into the technology that can make Web3 on Bitcoin and what's happening with Lightning and what's happening with actually using the established foundation of the, the key architecture of Bitcoin and all the great and credible ways that you can actually use that. But those episodes are right next to each other. But basically, Moxie Marlinspike talks about like making an NFT and these quote-unquote smart contracts. NFTs are literally just URLs which is everything wrong with, I mean, it's the opposite of decentralized. It's the opposite of trustless. It's the opposite of something that exists on the blockchain. It's something that exists on a server. And, and people are literally spending $80 transaction fees, $100 transaction fees to get their URL of their JPEG 
into quote unquote a wallet. If that's not, if that is not an example of people who have no idea what they're buying, and I mean, like a URL, guys, a URL, the things that you click on on websites, people are paying for these because somebody else put them on a blockchain. But still, the server at the end can deliver whatever JPEG they wanted. The OpenSea, the base standard for OpenSea and Rarible doesn't even have a hash of the image, which means your wallet doesn't have the slightest clue what the JPEG is supposed to be that's delivered to your wallet, which means they can deliver whatever the hell they want. And that's what Moxie actually did in it. He uh, created one and put in the URL and actually made it so that it it would know whether or not it was a request from the wallet or if it was the request from OpenSea or whatever. And he would just feed it a different image. And in fact, when you brought up after you bought the NFT for $100 and then spent a $100 transaction fee to get it into your wallet, it, would, it wouldn't show up as the artwork that you bought on the website. It would make the URL request. He would know it was from a wallet and he would feed a poop emoji into the wallet. And their wallet had absolutely no idea to, how to know There was absolutely no validation, no confirmation, no cryptographic anything that would allow that wallet to know that the poop emoji was wrong. That that wasn't the actual NFT. That wasn't the JPEG that the NFT was supposed to point at. And if the servers ever went down, if the URL was ever sold off to somebody else and they, you know, somebody went to Namecheap and bought it or any of the other, you know, just any domain name service and just purchased it because, eh, I don't want to hold these JPEGs anymore. I already got my money. I'm out. Well, then either, either you're your wallet just goes to a 404 because there's nothing there anymore and they're just going to shut down the URL or they can just put whatever the hell they want on the other side of it. They can put a virus on the other side of it. They can turn your NFT into something that crashes your computer and steals all of your data. Because guess what? Putting a URL on a blockchain makes it absolutely no different from every hyperlink you've ever seen in an email, on a website, or in any web browser that you have ever seen ever. It's still centralized. It's still completely arbitrary as to what someone else puts on that computer at the other end of the URL. It can still be seized. Everything that you know about website domains. And people are paying millions of dollars for it. Whew. No kidding. So there's a couple other uh, quotes in this um, that I had highlighted. Uh, One talking about the block size war. I've already kind of talked about that. You get the idea. I don't need to rant about that again. Um, This quote, even though this is basically the whole thesis of my guy's take here, is Bitcoin as a superior monetary good is more valuable than a better payment network. That if, if there is, that is the heart of all of this. The monetary good is the most valuable utility that Bitcoin can provide. A strong, credible, institutionless, stateless, bankless monetary policy. That is the breakthrough. Bitcoin's revolutionary invention was solving the problem of digital scarcity. Now, they talk about this is a... I don't want to harp on this too much. Um... We've read a piece recently that Bitcoin, yes, Bitcoin is a smart contract platform by Shinobi, by uh, Brian Trolls. Um, and, uh, or, or Bitcoin does, yes, Bitcoin has smart contracts. I can't remember exactly the title. Um, but a uh, really good piece if you haven't. Um, everything that happens on a blockchain 
is a smart contract basically is the gist of the thesis um the difference is the uh the scope of the ability to do smart contracts is bitcoins are more restrained whereas something like i don't know any of the other platforms ethereum or whatever has a much broader scripting language a much broader um uh scope of code that can be written into the chain but i really kind of think the best way to think about that is that it's there's a broader attack vector is that there's a broader scope of things to go wrong when you're looking at the fundamental value of this being decentralization of security, decentralization and security, the last thing you want is a giant kind of unknown attack surface. And you don't want arbitrary features. You don't want to be able to write an operating system into this thing because it's it's money. You want you want all exchange and value of uh, value of that script to go into monetary purposes, into purposes of ownership, of exchange of uh, uh, potential payment networks. That's why Lightning Network is the one widely used smart contract on Bitcoin, even though there are plenty of other things that can be done with it. Like I said, NFTs started on Bitcoin, but I think Bitcoiners typically understand that this is a monetary network, this is a monetary good, and that its fundamental value is nothing to do with the fact that you can put NFTs on it, you can put Pepe's on the blockchain, and because of that, there's just not a big market for it. There's only a market for it in the places where people don't understand money, which those people run over to crypto. And that's why I think Fidelity really hits on something, something great in this piece, talking about the risks and potential rewards, is that even if, even in both of their scenarios, that we live in a multi-chain world and there's lots of different cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, every single thing points to Bitcoin still being the foundation of that. That it is still the best way to invest in the success of the entire ecosystem, whether it be a vast majority, like a huge number of mini multi-coin, you know, setups or uh, a reality, or if it's just a winner-takes-all or winner-take-most world, which I firmly believe it's the latter, that Bitcoin, if, if we do end up, I mean, probably we'll still end up in some rough idea of a multi-coin world because we do kind of live in a multi-coin world now. This is artificially created. Um, we had multiple monies when we had a, the closest thing we ever had to a global sound money standard in gold and silver, which at least performed to slightly slightly different roles but it was kind of arbitrary you could argue that silver was mostly an extension of it and as soon as it lost that extension as soon as technology grew to a point that you could acquire silver that much easier than gold it got demonetized it got screwed like so i really don't think there's a really strong argument because the government currencies when you're talking about fiat those are very explicit and very artificial barriers they're not natural economic barriers. They're the government saying, you must use this currency within this border. And even that fails. Even that collapses when they screw up their mon the credibility of their monetary policy so bad that you get things like Argentina and Turkey and um, Zimbabwe and all the, cur the, the currencies that collapse. People still just use dollars, right? So it still gravitates toward the, mo the dominant store of value and the, uh, the strongest currency in the... Um, 
in, in the ecosystem or available in the network. So I think even if we do end up in a multi-chain world, that it will probably look a little bit like the fact that the internet has multiple protocols, but you still establish connections, you still establish uh, the, the route through these protocols or to connect to these other protocols via TCP IP. Like you still, it's still the fundamental layer. Like yes, FTP exists. Yes, SMTP exists, you know, email. Yes, the Tor network exists. You have these other networks that are exclusive to certain types of communication, but they really, truly are founded on TCP IP. None of them work if TCP IP breaks. I can't connect to the Tor network if TCP IP goes down, right? That is why I think we go to a winner-takes-all world, but, or winner-takes-most world in the, um, in the monetary sense. Um, and then also, obviously, what I mentioned earlier is the incredible pressures, the network effects for monetary networks. They're far, far more potent um, and longer lasting. Like this is a much more, you know, the monetation, monetization of goods typically takes centuries. The fact that we're witnessing it in a period of decades, like over a single lifespan, is truly remarkable when you're looking at the context of history. Monetization is not something that happens quickly. It is purely because of its digital nature and the fact that we have the internet and a completely globally communicated or, or globally accessible communications network and uh, with an incredibly low barrier to entry and the fact that the Bitcoin, Bitcoin itself is just software. That is the only reason that this is happening at the incredible like bullet train speed that it is happening today, which obviously for someone who cannot assess this as a monetary good, who does not have the proper framework to understand this, sees tech, right? They see a startup, they see, or a bubble, they just see, they see bullshit, they just see, uh, you know, tulips. But regardless, the point of this section was supposed to be that with, even with Fidelity's potential, two potential outcomes for the digital asset space and its growth, and what that future might look like, whether we're in a multi-chain world or we're in a winner-takes-most, winner-takes-all world, Bitcoin is still the highest reward-to-risk ratio. The risk of accidentally picking the wrong token, baseless token, that is going to have some utility or whatever when frivolous utilities can be easily subsumed by something that just has a slightly better utility. If that's what you're going for, payment networks can get replaced pretty easily. Social networks do tend to change over time. Companies don't have a very long lifespan in the age of the internet. You know, like just the internet itself was a great example. There were so many incumbents who thought they were, all, they already had such a foundation that there was going to be no, uh, no replacing them ever. And they got demolished. They got demolished in the digital age. So trying to pick the right one of those is incredibly risky because the downside is that it's going to go to zero. It's going to be worthless if it's not used for the utility because there's no, it's not got any monetary value. You're hoping all of the utility is what brings it, makes it worth something. The, the casino chip is worth something because people want to go to the casino. Whereas even if those are incredibly successful, Bitcoin is going to be successful too, because it's the foundation for all of it. It's the reason there is a credible monetary policy to actually build a robust foundation for the ecosystem as a whole. And I think people discount the upside. 
You know, people think that, oh, 100x is unlikely with uh, something that is already a trillion dollars, and I don't think that's off the table. Yeah, it's certainly... Guys. Yeah, certainly it's far more liquid than... Uh, or it's far larger and has the... Um, has a limit on how large it can be, right? It can only be as large as civilization itself, okay? Um, but that's why the meme of everything divided by 21 million is so powerful because that is ultimately the value of a single Bitcoin. If it continues to prove itself as secure, robust, digital sound money, and as we continue to move into a more and more digital economy and where commerce takes place specifically over the internet and where um, the monetary foundation is more and more cohesive and we actually adopt a single global sound money standard well, the value of that money is everything in the economy divided by the number of units. So Bitcoin as a $100 trillion asset, Bitcoin as $100 trillion as a payment network obviously is ridiculous. No one would, a payment network could never possibly be that valuable because it's just a utility. You know, that would just mean that there's so much friction in the economy for making payments and that there's no alternative that people are wasting an ungodly amount of money on the payment network. There's only so much utility in just sending payments back and forth. But the idea of the money, of the monetary good, is the representation. It's the mirror image of everything that moves and is traded for in the economy. Therefore, the base sound money of a society is equal in value, is equal roughly in market cap of everything that it is used to trade for. Everything that someone will accept money for is the mirror image of the value of the money. That is why we say the ultimate value proposition of Bitcoin is everything there is divided by 21 million. And if Bitcoin continues to survive, it continues to be robust, it continues to do its job, it continues to prove that this works, yeah, it can be $100 trillion. Yeah, that's the nature of money. Sure, there is an Everest-sized mountain to climb before we get there, but it is totally within reach. In fact, if it continues to succeed, I kind of expect it to be there one day. If not, it means we ran into some inherent limitation or some inability to spread globally for some other reason, like there's some other barrier. But the global economy is worth more than $100 trillion. Therefore, if the global economy actually attaches itself to a single sound monetary standard, it will be worth that and some change. So it's not as if the monetary case for Bitcoin doesn't have any upside. It's still got an incredible amount of upside. And in fact, the risk of holding something other than it depending on its likelihood of succeeding in that quest, could be really, really high. Because of all of the things that are going to be demonetized, and the, the, oof, the unfortunately very, very, very painful transition in the legacy systems that will have to take place in order for us to reach that place. But the society that will be created on the other side of that, the society, the incentives of the economic system, if we actually adopt global sound money, will be so astonishingly valuable.
will hinder, will stop and put resistance into so much conflict that we are used to, into so much political fighting that shouldn't even be on the table, into monetary policy manipulation, into the corruption of money printing and debt creation, into the destructive and uh, divisive tools of war which are profitable in the context of fiat garbage money but are disincentivized strongly when you are looking at sound money, when the cost can't be hidden away with inflation or debt or conquering another country to dump your currency on. The realigning of those incentives will create so much, valuable, so much value in the economy that I think it will. I think it will kill all of fiat. Because why would you want to use something small, fragile, and easily corruptible when, the, when you have access to the entire global economy in a frictionless way by speaking the same language as everybody else, the same monetary language. And it is secure and independent, completely irrespective of your political environment. You have made the state obsolete in the question of what money you would use. And damn it, that is a future I hope we get to. I think that's where we are galloping toward with uh, rather incredible speed. Um, so with that, we're going to close this out. Good God. Um, uh, my name is Guy Swan. A uh, huge thank you to all of you guys for sticking with this whole two hours. And um, uh, thank you to Fold, to Bitbox, to Swan Bitcoin, and to the Bitcoin 2022 conference. Don't forget to check out discounts, links, and all those goodies in the show notes. Um, check out our sponsors. They are wonderful products and uh, they help make this show possible. Um, thanks for subscribing and I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan and until next time, everybody, take it easy. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.